I'm, uh, my name is Joe Mueller. I'm one of the, the elders here at Remedy. Um, and it's going to be my pleasure to, to get to preach from God's Word today. So um, we are actually going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you could turn your Bibles there. Now in um, 1 Corinthians 8, we're actually beginning anew the second of the, the questions that Paul is going to be addressing uh, directly from the Corinthian people. And, and this is uh, going to be a sizable chunk uh, that's going to address this single question of, of food offered to idols. It's going to take us all the way from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through 11, verse 1. Uh, so it's essentially three full chapters of nothing but idols. Uh, which is something that I'm sure we're all very familiar with. We go to the market and we see Artemis and we see Hermes and we see Zeus. No, we don't, we don't really see that anymore. Um, but I, I think that there is going to be uh, much rich reflection uh, for us as God's people uh, as we come to study his word. And so uh, here at Remedy, we, we've sort of started a new tradition. I think after we read, I'm supposed to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you guys say, thanks be to God. Yep, okay, good. Um, so if we would all stand, if you are, are physically able to do so, for the reading of God's word. Starting in 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there... Uh, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. In one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ has died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that we have your word. 
that you have preserved for us, the good news of your Son, that you have preserved for us an accurate record of your law, and we may live holy and pure lives as we image your most beloved Son. And so, Father, we ask that this would be a time where that would be accomplished, where you would take this image of your word that is here uh, in the Bible for us, your son, as he is imaged to us here in this scripture, and that you would sear that image upon our conscience and upon our hearts and upon our lips and upon our hands and upon our feet, that we may be like that man, Jesus Christ, that we may be more like him day in and day out, And so, Spirit, we beg you to do that work in our hearts. Father, send him to us. Jesus, send your Spirit to us to do that work in us, that we may be more like Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, guys. Sorry. So, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Again, this... this, Uh, This chapter that we're looking at today is just the first step in a three-chapter series on idolatry. And Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church about that idolatry. And one through three is the intro to the intro. So that's how I think it. It's an intro to the introduction. And we can see that by looking at some of the language that's going on um, here. So in in the English, right, we see in verse 1... Uh, now, concerning food offered to idols. But then, if we uh, were paying attention, uh, verse 4, we have a phrase that's very, very similar in English, but it's actually exactly the same uh, in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in. And it says in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. What Paul is is signaling to us here is he's not restarting his conversation or his discussion with the Corinthians about this um, food offered to idols. But what he is doing in verses 1 through 3, he is introducing the topic. He is providing some, some groundwork for what is going on. And if you notice in those three verses, he doesn't get into very many specifics about idolatry or food. Those, those terms aren't mentioned at all. And so in the first three verses of chapter 8, Paul is setting the stage for the journey he is going to take us on over the next three chapters. And as is typical with Paul, these verses are super dense. There is so much packed into these um, that will be unpacked. In this chapter, in chapter 8, but then also in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 as well. So uh, that's just my thing to say, hey, stick around. If this is your first time here at Remedy, come back so you can hear all about idolatry. You'll hear it from me today, uh, chapter 8, but Fudd will be preaching on chapter 9 and Jack will be preaching on chapter 10. So it'll be like an elder trifecta uh, on idolatry. That one pays out well at the, uh, the bedding place. Um, uh, so, what, what I want you to see today is that um, Paul starts off this whole discussion, what is core, what is essential for us to understand about this discussion, this, uh, this discourse on idolatry, is that knowledge, and the air quotes are specific, knowledge 
is contrasted with love. Listen to uh, the words of 1 through 3 again. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that we, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Puffing versus building. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now did you hear that contrast and recasting that Paul is trying to accomplish in these verses? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And this contrast and recasting is crucial for understanding where Paul is going over these three chapters. We have to understand that this fake knowledge and love, love, are uh, at odds with each other. But before we get into that, sort of the first sort of groundwork point that I'm trying to make here, uh, that we need to see, because I think some people go this way, uh, not here at Remedy, but just in general, um, Paul is not saying, he is not saying in 1 through 3 that true knowledge, solid, biblical, wise knowledge is in opposition to love. He is not attacking real knowledge. He is not saying something like true knowledge puffs up. He is not saying knowledge about Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, rightly understood and rightly applied, applied, makes you arrogant. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul thinks very highly of knowledge in general. And even in his letter to the Corinthians. Oh my goodness. Um, he, He thinks really highly of knowledge. And he thinks that knowledge, right knowledge, good knowledge... True knowledge actually protects and guards God's people and actually enables them to be loving toward others. Just uh, consider 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That knowledge is supposed to do something in the Corinthian church. Or 1 Corinthians 5.6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Talking about sin in the Corinthian church. In 1, 6, 2, and 3, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then in 3, he says, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? This knowledge is supposed to change the way that the Corinthians live their lives. And then in uh, 1, 6, 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And these are just the references in 1 Corinthians that we've already covered to date. There's more in, in 9, 13, and 24, and 11, 3, and in 15, 58. Paul uses, do you not know language to try to get the Corinthians to live a certain way? And so all knowledge isn't bad. And Paul is not in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, saying that all knowledge puffs up. So what is he saying? What is Paul attacking? And this is the next point of this introduction. Paul is attacking faux knowledge, fake knowledge, false knowledge, incomplete knowledge. 
And, and the ESV sort of agrees with me here because they're putting these air quotes around the word knowledge. So this is what I think is going on. If, if we're reading that whole sort of section 8 through 11, 1, we begin to see this historical situation that is creating the, this reason for Paul writing this letter. And so he is attacking uh, this position described as knowledge by an element in the Corinthian church. And so to be sure, this knowledge is based on biblical knowledge. And that's, I think, a crucial point that we have to see. And we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit later. But this knowledge that the knowledge that the Corinthians have, it, it fails the test of biblical knowledge. Or, as Paul says in 8.2, it's not yet knowing as he ought to know. In that it is pseudo-knowledge and lacks completeness. It puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. And it leads to death rather than to life. But what does it lack, right? How is it not complete? Again, we'll get to that in a second. But I, I think that this element who has this knowledge has been frequenting temples. That's what's been going on. They've been going to temples, and they've been participating in the religious and social obligations of their pagan surroundings, and they've been reaping the benefits of that. So just a a little very high-level, super high-level understanding of temple culture is you go to the temple, and you have a huge party, and then you leave. Right? And that party is supposed to honor the God. And you eat meat that gets sacrificed. And everyone has a grand old time. And then uh, that was your devotion to God X, Y, or Z. Very high level, first century temple worship. Um, it was great. It was fun. Uh, people enjoyed themselves at these little shindigs. Um, and people would want to go to these, right? Um, people would want to eat meat because it's delicious. People would want to be seen... Uh, in their social connections, especially if they had all these connections before. It was a time to, to rub shoulders with powerful people and to talk and to network and to be seen in society. <laughs> network, Otto. Um, and they, they used this knowledge, this knowledge that they had of the Bible to give an excuse why they could attend these things. That's what was going on. They, they had this knowledge, and they said, I can go to this because of these reasons. And we'll get to those reasons in a second. But the other thing that happened is that uh, their participation in this idolatry was extremely public. Right? They would go, and they would be seen, and they would be known. And other Christians would see this, and they began to follow them in their idolatry, which we see in 8.10. And so that is why this this pseudo-knowledge, the ESV is putting air quotes around it. Because it's not biblical knowledge. It's not real knowledge. Their knowledge isn't the type of stuff that Paul wants his people to know when he writes his letters. It is something quite different. Where Paul's knowledge is true, this knowledge is false. Where Paul preaches the original, this is a counterfeit. Life springs forth from Paul's proclamation of his knowledge, while death follows after this knowledge. Using Paul's words here, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This fake knowledge is different from love. And this is our fir- the first of our direct comparisons between knowledge and love in 8, 1 through 3. And here is Paul is trying to pull the veil back 
and reveal the fruits of this so-called knowledge. It's not, it's not life. It is arrogance. And so that's our next point here is this faux knowledge leads to arrogance. The fruit of false knowledge is arrogance. This knowledge puffs up. Or as the NASB puts it, knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge makes arrogant. And arrogance is a really common thing in the First Corinthians or the Corinthian church and in the First Corinthians in general. And in fact, if you do like a survey of the number of times it talks about uh, being arrogant or being puffed up, the word that's used in Corinthians uh, is used five of the six times in First Corinthians. And so it, it happens in four, uh, six, and then 18 and 19, um, where he's talking to the people and he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos. If you guys remember back, there's like factions in the Corinthian church. And people are like, I like Paul. And other people are, I like Apollos. Um, and then I like this other guy. Um, and, and they're split. They're divided. They are at odds with each other. They're in parties. They're in camps. Um, and they, they, they're um, butting heads about it. So uh, Paul's writing to them. He says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Some are arrogant, jumping down to verse 18 of chapter 4, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So these earlier chapters is where Paul is dealing with the factions in the Corinthian church. And then these verse quoted, Paul condemns sectarianism. He condemns tribalism. He condemns racism. He condemns all the isms that put us in our own little groups and fight each other as arrogant as evil, as wicked. And in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 2, he says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And if we can remember back to chapter 5, it was a little awkward, but chapter 5 is where Paul is dealing with a man engaged in unrepented wickedness. And he is telling the Corinthians that letting sin go uncondemned and unchallenged within the church is arrogance. Failure to practice church discipline is arrogance. It's evil. 1 Corinthians 1.8, knowledge puffs up. And so this so-called knowledge that the Corinthians have is a source of arrogance. And it's, in my opinion, it's the source of all of our arrogance. If we think through our own arrogance, if we're, if we're thoughtful, we take a pause for a second and, and examine the groups that we find ourselves in, and the way that we prefer the ideologies and the thoughts and the, the, the look and the feel of the peoples within our own groups, whether it's theological or social or political or racial. And how we justify how we feel about these groups by attacking what, what is the other. What is outside of us? What are the views that we don't have in our group? And how do we make them seem stupid or irrelevant or dumb? And to be fair, sometimes they are. Like, that's, 
it's fair, right? Sometimes they are, and that's, that's fine. But they, they're not, they're not uh, sort of dumb on their face. They're dumb for reasons, um, which is fair, right? We, we're all reasonable people. We should think things through and examine them. Uh, but they're not just wrong because they come from somebody other than a member of our group or our clan or our tribe. And if we think about how we interact with those people and with those ideas and how we shout them down and how we try to cast them as people without knowledge and, and how we try to minimize the sins of our own group and only, only call out sins from other people's groups while striking out at them, maybe we are being a bit arrogant too. And I think that the Lord is saying, stop. Don't be that way. Your knowledge is puffing you up. And so we'll, we'll end up seeing, if, if we're honest here, if we go in with the Spirit, we will see where we have knowledge. Where we thought we used to have the real stuff, right? The stuff that produces love, that produces life, that produces light, that shines in darkness. And we'll realize that maybe we were a little bit too dark. But we can go to the Lord of Light, and he will scatter the darkness from us. And he will forgive our souls, and he will wash us of all unrighteousness, and we will be healed by his hands. And so will you come to him to be forgiven today? Will you walk that path and examine your own heart and see where arrogance lies within you? What knowledge do you need to be rid of this morning? Who do you need to apologize to? And so now that we've seen the fruits of false knowledge is arrogance, what was it that the Corinthians believed that Paul was attacking? What was the content of their knowledge? And so now we're getting into the sort of the second section here of, of what we know, right? Paul starts off his... Um, his little discourse here, therefore, as to food, uh, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know. So he's, he's sort of re-entering the discussion after setting the table of, of love and um, knowledge and how they're uh, at odds with each other. And he says, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords... And for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Also, this is a great um, declaration of the divinity of Jesus. If anyone is, is dealing with anyone who doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, take them here. Jesus is Lord. He is, he is God. That's uh, one of many places you should take them. Um, but it's here. Uh, we believe in the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, three persons, one essence. Uh, that is God. Um, now, there are three assertions made here uh, that Paul is actually agreeing with, right? The first is that an idol has no real existence, i.e., it ain't no God. Uh, we see that in verse 4. Um, the second is that men have multiplied their so-called gods and lords. We see that in verse 5. And then uh, the third is that there is no God but one, and his name is Jesus. 
And so if you're looking at these three assertions at face value, they make a ton of sense biblically. And so I want to talk about that. So if you look over at Psalm uh, 115, Psalm 115, it says this. It says, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them uh, become like them. So do all who trust in them. So compare... Compared to the living God who spoke the world into existence, right? He spoke it, Genesis 1. And he upholds it by the power of his word, which is Hebrews 1. This God who surveys the world looking for the righteous, which is 2, Corinthians, or 2 Chronicles 16. Uh, who hears the cries of his people, which is Psalm 34. Who smells the pleasing aromas of their sacrifices, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, who stretches out his mighty hands to save, which is Psalm 138, who walks among his people as their king, their warrior, and their God, which is Leviticus 26. Compared to this living God, the idols pale in comparison. They aren't even real. They're just the product of human hands. Isaiah 44 and 9 and following does this great parody, right? The, it talks about how with the same piece of wood, the, the engraver cuts and burns a fire so he could cook dinner. And with the other part, he fashions this, this idol that people worship. It's silly. It's, it's stupid. It's dumb. Idol worship is nothing, right? It's nothing, which is what the Bible teaches. An idol is nothing. It has no real existence. Now, the, the, the second thing is that men have multiplied their so-called gods and lords. We, uh, we see that in Second uh, Kings 17, 9 through 12. And, and in this section, the, the, um, the writer of Second Kings is explaining why Israel, the northern kingdom, went into exile. And he, he writes, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord... Uh, their God, things that were not right. This is 2 Kings 17, uh, 9. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. High places are bad. They're places of idol worship. Uh, they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. Again, idol worship. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. So that, that claim seems to hold up, right? Men, as, as many as there are men, are gods in the world, right? Um, even there are cultures that have even made gods of their ancestors, right? Ancestor worship, um, you can walk into a, uh, a household in India, and they will have idols just all over this, like, little thing in their, in their house. They're everywhere. Um, and so, um, 
The claim that there are many gods and are many lords seems biblical. Men have multiplied them. They've scattered them everywhere. And in doing so, they have rejected the worship of God Most High, of Jesus. And as they've been multiplying their gods and lords, what they're actually worshiping is they're actually worshiping demons, which is what 1 Corinthians 10, 20 tells us. And, uh, and they're doing that instead of worshiping the one true God. And so that's sort of the final uh, part of this section, point of this section that it is important to see, is that there is no God but one, and his name is Jesus. Deuteronomy 6 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And Jesus says in John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you. And here we have knowledge again. So it can't all be bad, right? Jesus says we need to know God. The only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it seems like, from where I'm standing, at face value, the, the claims of these Corinthians who have knowledge, right, in air quotes, they're 100% right. They haven't got a single thing wrong in what they've been saying. All of their claims pass the orthodoxy test, right? They're attested by Jesus. They're in the Old Testament. Everything they say is correct. So why is Paul attacking why is Paul saying that they're wrong? What could be invalidating the truth that they are believing in their head and professing with their lips? What are they getting wrong? The answer, I think, is love. They are missing love. This knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so here, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, from that chapter on love, all, or sorry, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, I would love to have all those things. So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so this is the, the, sort of the final point of this section here is all knowledge minus love equals nothing. You can know all the things, but if you lack love, you have nothing. And this is a common principle in Scripture. This is a very common thing. Um, and I shall produce two witnesses, right? We're in, a, we're in a courtroom here, and I need to produce two witnesses because testimony has to be... Two or more witnesses, right? It has to be confirmed. I already got one, but I'm going to have two more, so I have three total. The first comes from Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. Matthew 23, 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, right? We had a dill plant growing in our front yard. That thing does not produce much dill. Like, it, once it's, it's tiny. It's tiny. Like, it could all fit in a single hand. And to think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make effort to, to cut off a tenth of that and take that and go give it to the temple, that's dedication, right? That is effort. That is, like, law-keeping. Yeah! But, Jesus continues, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice. 
and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So you see, the Pharisees were right to tithe their mint and their dill and their cumin. But what did they lack? They lacked justice. They lacked mercy. They lacked faithfulness. And to borrow a turn of phrase from Cornell West, what is justice if not what love looks like in public? Justice is what love looks like in public. And what is mercy if not love reaching out and extending itself to those in moments of their greatest need? And what is faithfulness if not the love of God breaking into this world by his spirit in his people? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus condemned, despite their rigorous religious observances and rules and effort, lacked something so essential to their lives that it invalidated all of it. They lacked love. So another way of doing this equation is all law-keeping minus love equals nothing. Now, my my second witness comes from Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, 16 through 24. Uh, Reading in 16, it says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. So the second table, right, of the Ten Commandments. And then, uh, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is that beautiful blanket statement. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Yo? Um, It's not there, I promise. I just, I made that up. Um. 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, notice, notice in 19, right, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the second greatest commandment. It summarizes all the positive obligations that human beings owe to each other. We all owe each other love, and we owe it to the degree that we would want it for ourselves. We owe that to each other. It binds us together. It is, it is God's law of creation upon us. And where we live without love, we are breaking God's commandments. We cannot fulfill God's commandments without love. It is impossible. And in the face of the rich young ruler's assertion that he has kept it all, Jesus asks a man to sell his wealth to demonstrate mercy by giving it to the poor, and to follow Jesus. Or, to put it in different words, to demonstrate his faith by going after him as a disciple. And so these are the same elements missing from the scribes and Pharisees above mercy and faithfulness. The only element there is justice. But he, he, he wasn't a dispenser of justice like the scribes and Pharisees were. He's called to account for lacking mercy and lacking faithfulness. So the rich young ruler lacked love too. So all earthly status plus law keeping, he kept the law, right? Minus love equals nothing. 
And so now we're transitioning into our last little section here. Brothers who don't know. That's what 7 through 13 is. The Corinthians who possess this knowledge lacked love. That was their Achilles heel. 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 Um, That is what they lacked. And the reason that they lacked it is because they forgot about the brother who didn't know. Verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. There are four phrases here that I want us to key in on. The first is a weak conscience in verse 7. Their conscience being weak, is defiled. Paul, Paul will talk more about this in chapter 10, so I won't, I'll, won't spend much time here. But I want to point out that participating in idol worship in an idol's temple, right? So, so you're going to the party. You're, you're watching the priest sort of do the deed on the, on the animal, and then you're smelling it as it gets roasted. Mmm, delicious. Um, that participation is completely forbidden in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 22. It is completely forbidden for you to go and worship an idol and participate in idol worship in the idol's temple. But eating food sold in the meat market that has its origin from that sacrifice in the idol's temple is a-okay as long as the individual eating isn't participating in their heart in the sacrifice. And this is what I mean. So if I, at one point in my past, was a Thor worshiper, because he's the god of thunder, and thunder's powerful, and I want to worship a powerful god, right? And then I become a follower of the way, and I go to the meat market, and I buy some meat, and I take it home to eat with my family, and then I find out that that meat was offered to Thor in sacrifice, right? I used to worship Thor. I used to say the Thor prayer when I ate my meal. I used to, to think the Thor thoughts when, when I was so grateful that he had done this great thing for me. Thor, right? Um, and, and like I do that because I know the food is offered to an idol. I know it's offered to this God, and I'm so used to doing it. And I feel like I have to because if I don't, Thor will be mad at me, Right? Thor will get mad, and he may send his thunder and strike me. Or he may not send me the rain that I need to grow my crops. Or there is some reason that this God, who is not real, will be upset if I don't pay him the lip service that he demands with his meal and his sacrifice. So if I am a person who can't eat that meat knowing that it's offered to Thor because I get scared or because my heart just wants to go back to Thor, if I'm not that person, I can eat any meat I want. No problem at all. 
I, I, I have no reason to not eat it. And so if you think about it, Jews probably did this with, like, abandon, right? There was meat at the market. They could buy whatever they want. But this may be a problem for a Gentile brother. This may be a problem for somebody who is a Gentile convert and had this lifelong devotion to this false god and is having trouble breaking away from it. But what about the person who knows as he ought to know, who won't say, thanks, Thor, uh, when he eats? When should he not eat? And this leads us to the second phrase I want us to focus in on, and it's about rights and stumbling blocks. That's the next point here, rights and stumbling blocks. It says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak in verse 9. So Paul is also forbidding a person who knows rightly. He knows the truth. He knows true things about food, that it's just food. It's not a big deal. No better off if you eat, no better off if you don't. And Paul is binding that person for the sake of his brother, who could be struggling with his life of past idolatry. Paul is binding that strong brother to not be a stumbling block to the weak. He is saying when, that when your mode of life encourages them to forsake their commitment to Christ, and to add something man-made to the equation so you could have Jesus plus Zeus, or Jesus plus Artemis, or Jesus plus Thor, when your mode of life is telling one of your brothers that that's okay, you need to stop, because you're going to destroy them. Jesus has strong words for stumbling blocks in Matthew 18, 6. Jesus says this. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or to stumble like we have in 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Jesus says this. He says, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's how Jesus cares for his people. That's how he cares about you, that you don't stumble. I think of the the bear, right? The bear whose cub is under attack and he just goes like aggro, right? That's Jesus on you. That's how Jesus feels when, when something happens to you. And but why does Jesus talk this way? Why does Jesus care so much about this? That's our third point, the weak are destroyed by this participation. So verse 11 says, By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Now, destroyed is a big word. It means like dead, dead. Just like we have in 1 Corinthians 1.18, where it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who are destroyed. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. So the people who are destroyed are distinct from the people who are being saved. And again, this will get covered in chapter 10, as Paul picks up this idea and explains it more fully by using the example of of Israel in the past. But let me say this. How you interact with your fellow Christian matters. And what you lead them into, and what you keep them safe from, could be a matter of life and death for that person. Life or death. And so that is why uh, this last point, Christian resolve. This is verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, 
I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And so this is what Paul has been driving at since he opened up the topic in 8.1. If food, food, what is food? It's just food. If it makes him stumble, if it makes him die, if it makes him renounce Christ for food, I'll never eat meat again. And Paul anticipates that writing this to the Corinthian church will produce a ton of questions because he opens with a ton of questions in verse 9, or in chapter 9. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Paul is willing to give up all of his rights all of his rights so that he may prevent one of his brothers from dying. And that we need not be surprised that Paul is willing to forgo this. We need not be surprised that Paul is willing to forgo meat when we learn what Jesus was willing to forgo for the sake of his brothers. It says, the brother for whom Christ died. In our, in our chapter today. The brother for whom Christ died. That's in verse 11. And that is how Paul phrases it. In other places we learn that Jesus, what Jesus was willing to do. Jesus, in Philippians 2, 6-8, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, gave up all of his rights by taking the form of a servant. He was commanded what to do. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The brother for whom Christ died. There are two things that must immediately jump out to us when we hear something like this. First, We should be struck with the realization that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to live a servant's life and fulfill all righteousness so that his death and his righteousness might be applied to me and to the church of God. And he came and he died for brothers. And so the question is, are you his? Does hearing about what he has done for you make your heart want to sing? Does it make your voice want to cry out with shouts of joy? Does it make your body want to erupt in expressions of gladness and relief? Does it make you want to weep over how someone so sweet and someone so pure and someone so lovely and someone so good would ever do something like that for the likes of you? Are you his? And that is the first question. That is the only question if it's not something that you've settled on just yet. Are you his? And he is inviting you to be his today. Now, the, the second question is only for us who are the Lord's. It is only for us who can answer yes. Who else might I belong to? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And my question to us is this. Do you want to be like him? Do you want to cast off all your rights for the sake of others? All of your privileges and all of your knowledge so that you can be like Jesus. 
Do you want to preserve the lives of those who Christ died for? Do you want to be like him? Let's pray. So Jesus, we, we are eternally grateful for all that you have done. And you have done everything. And so Lord, we, we beg you. We are not perfect people. Our lives are full of sin. And that's just the stuff we know about. That are just the areas that in your grace and in your mercy you have revealed to us. But Lord, we, we all acknowledge there is more for you to do. There is deeper for us to go. There is more of Jesus for us to enter into and walk in. And so Lord, we, we beg you. We beg you to do more. Do more in us. Fill us more. Make us more like Jesus. You are the great giver of all good things. And we can only get good things from you. And so, Lord, give us a passion and a burning desire and an incessant knocking at your door for the gifts of your spirit. Let us, let us be like an old widow who is being denied justice by an unjust judge. And we hammer at your door night and day for the gifts that you long to give us. You will not deny us more of yourself. You will not deny us your beloved son. You will not deny us any good and perfect gift. Because you have already given us Jesus. You have already given us all that you need to give us for us to be able to, to live the lives that you have called us to live. And so God, we want more. We want more of that good stuff. We want more of the life that you want us to live. We want more holiness. We want more knowledge. We want more love. And so, Father, do that in us today. Amen.